Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. It is great to see you this morning. It is a joy to be with you. Uh, we do, the, the elders of the church and the, the staff, we do pray that this morning would be a blessing and an encouragement to your lives. We've been in a sermon series this summer called Stories for Christ Followers, for real Christ followers, and we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew throughout our summer months here, and we're going to continue that today. So if you have your Bibles with you, or your devices, whichever you prefer, find those, get those out. Matthew 17 is where we will be today. So at LifePoint, we do talk about uh, our theological perspective, how we understand God. Uh, We believe that God is mystery, that He is greater than our understanding, His ways are higher than our ways. We cannot fully comprehend all of who God is and what He is about. We also talk about God as truth. He is truth. He does not access truth. It does not exist outside of God as something of a a good idea that he likes to instruct people with. We believe that God himself is truth. And finally, uh, as we talk about our theological perspective here at LifePoint, we talk about God as story. He is the author. He is the source of all things. He is the theme. He's our goal. He's the objective. He's our guide. And he is actively at work in creation to bring us into fellowship with him through his son Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. And as I think about God as story and his activity in our lives, I think about how Jesus came to us and he showed us that he is the way even while we were following our own ways. Now, I don't know about you, but most of the stories in my life, I remember because they took directions that I had not initially anticipated or prepared for. Uh, I remember early in the life of our church, uh, some friends got together and we traveled up to Chicago for a weekend. I don't know what the reason was, just probably good times, but um, for some reason, me and uh, one of my friends, we got to stay separate from a group of other friends. And so the plan was, let's go get settled in our places, and then we'll meet back to have dinner. I'm pretty sure it was pizza. We were in Chicago. Um, So I spent three days that afternoon in Chicago with my friend. Wandering around the city, this, had just, this is just when the, the, those iPhones had come out and we were following the maps, the smartphone, two dumb guys following a really smart phone, wandering around all of Chicago. We were on both sides of the river. There were words, there, were, there was some laughter. Um, there was a shared sandwich at one point. We hopped on buses and trains and it took us all day lost in Chicago, 
after some pretty serious threats about throwing his dumb phone in the water, um, we did end up meeting our our friends for dinner. Um, And then that evening, the trip got even better as we were walking to the train station to go back to our... uh, the place where we were staying, it was a hostel in, in Chicago, and um, they were doing maintenance on the train. And so we walked to one stop, they were doing maintenance, it was closed. So we walked to the next one, it was closed. For like five miles, we kept walking and, and holding out hope that one of the, the train stations would be open that we could hop on, even if it was a train to the wrong place. We were just wanting to stop walking. But that was a very sweet time of just being utterly lost and hopeless and confused. But we had the fellowship of one another, and we did eventually make our way to our hotel, and we enjoyed Chicago. But our God, he's very good at his story. And our text today is an excellent example of God entering into his story to help his disciples understand who he is, what he has done for us. And he walked with them. He helped them. He kept them close. He did tell them things that they had trouble understanding, as we'll look at today. And he gave them signposts along the way to help them know what it means to be a follower of Christ. So my prayer for us this morning as we look at Matthew chapter 17 is that we would understand and see clearly clearly that the willingness, power, and authority of Jesus the Messiah brings full provision for salvation and real faith for God's children. So let's look at our text. We're beginning in verse 14. And when they came to him, oh, and when they came to the crowd, sorry, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So, In our text that we're going to be looking at this morning, and we'll we'll go a little bit further on down through Matthew 17, but there are three distinct sections in this passage of Scripture, and we're going to spend a little bit of time on each one this morning. We're going to look at three markers, those signposts that Jesus gave us, three markers for a correct understanding of following Jesus. So, 
In the section previous to our verses this morning, Jesus has been on the mountain. He has been transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And he's, as he's coming down the mountain from this miraculous transfiguration, he is met by a crowd and a man in desperation for his sick child runs up to Jesus. His son suffered horribly. His, the, these seizures that he experienced were a threat to his life. And the man asked Jesus to heal his son. As a father, there's something very familiar about this man. He knew firsthand that something was wrong with his child and he was outside of his control to do anything to make it right. I do believe this is one area of life where we can all find common ground. We all know too well through our experience that something is, is off, something is wrong, something's not satisfied in our hearts. And most of our time we spend devising plans and making attempts to fix things, to make an account for the wrongs that we see or the wrongs that we experience or even sometimes cause. And this is where we like to look at our own lives and, and pray and hope that compassion and empathy will win the day. But then we see Jesus' response, and it's a perfect response in my opinion. It is one full of compassion and empathy, but it jolts us out of our understanding of the situation. Jesus hears the pleas of this man. He sees the failed outcome of his disciples' efforts, and he sees a broken and sick child and a desperate father. And he asks, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? We can assume he was addressing his disciples, but we can also assume this was a general address to those who had gathered around him. With no context other than this question that Jesus has given us in, in the face of suffering and sickness, we could perceive this as a cold response for people who have good intentions to help this boy. And I believe this question exposes a, a crucial element of the story, as we'll see in a moment. But marker number one for a correct understanding of following Jesus is that Jesus is the only right object of our faith. So what happens here? In, this midst, in the midst of this issue of faith, Jesus asked them to bring him the boy, and in a word, Jesus rebukes the demon, casts him out, and the boy is immediately healed. Don't miss that picture. We serve a willing and kind and good and powerful Messiah. In the midst of twisted, faithless people, Jesus once again demonstrated his willingness to save. And he exercised his authority 
over all created things. Now, if we continue in our text, it's the disciples who have a question. And we must consider both of these questions that we've seen in this text this morning. Let's compare them. Jesus asked, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? The disciples ask, why couldn't we cast it out? (laughs) I think it's a fair question. They had experienced this before. But what can we learn from these two questions? First and foremost, Jesus is addressing a situation where he rightly calls out the faith of the involved parties. Two words he he uses are faithless and twisted. And there are a couple ways to think about this. Faith in anything besides Jesus is unbelief and backwards. That's what those two literal words mean. Implied in his question is an impetus for people to repent and believe in him. Now at this point in the gospel story, the disciples are still struggling through trying to understand who Jesus is. Peter makes a good confession in the previous chapter. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. But in the same chapter, he also rebukes Jesus. Tells him, hey, you're doing it wrong. That's a paraphrase. The other way to put this is that Jesus is the only right object of our faith. Faith in anything else offers no assurance of anything. There are some interpretations of this passage that suggest, well, if the disciples or the Father had just had more faith, that's not what's being addressed here. Jesus dispels that notion in his answer to the disciples' questions. They ask him, why could we not cast it out? Because of your little faith. Our perceptions about the amount of faith that we possess or that we have in God can differ as we struggle through life's challenges. It's it's impossible to gauge the, the level of faith that we have. That's because we're not meant to measure that. And if we interpret scripture in this way, this leads us on a path of trusting our own efforts to muster some kind of magic or strength or mysterious force that we can use to our advantage. And I'd agree with Jesus on this point. Viewing our faith in this way is a twisted way of understanding. The amount of faith is not at issue here. Listen to what Jesus truly says in his response to his disciples. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed. This is not the first time Jesus has taught about mustard seeds. You will remember this is an illustration he uses to show how small faith in uh, the kingdom of God is and how it grows. The amount of faith is not, is, what, is not what is at issue here. He says, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. You would think 
If the amount of faith was the issue here, that would be reversed. He would say, if you just had the faith of a mountain, then you could do something. Then you'd be worth it. That's not what Jesus said. But he does address their little faith. The disciples found themselves at the foot of an immovable mountain. Not because of the amount of their faith, but because their faith was in something lesser than Jesus. We don't know for sure whether it was their faith in their position as his disciples. They had been walking with him. They had been treated as uh, close acquaintances of Jesus. Whether it was their experience, as I mentioned earlier, of casting out demons previously. Even their good intentions of bringing healing to the boy. Maybe that was the object of their faith. But what is clear is that their faith was not in Jesus. Questions of faith are often built upon a, a greater view of ourselves and a wrong view of Jesus. And this matters for our daily faith journey. The foundations of our sin, the foundations of our life have been destroyed by sin. As I mentioned earlier, we all experience and recognize something is off. We have been separated from God, the Bible teaches us, because of our sin. So we look to anything and everything we can find for security. We look to anything and everything to find truth. We look to anything and everything to find meaning. Yes, even healing. Something, anything to build the foundations of our lives upon. We want this control. And the world offers us no lack of options to put our faith in. The great faith, uh, the great hymn, Come Thou Fount, says, We are prone to wander. And Lord, we feel it. We look to wealth, comfort, intellect, technological advancements, influence, strength pleasure, relationship, anything and everything, but all of these things twist our focus away from Jesus and deceive us. That is what Jesus is calling his disciples to understand. Faithless and twisted generation. Look to me. Jesus teaches us that even the smallest amount of faith placed in the right object is how mountains are moved or how the impossible is made possible. Now as to the matter of healing, friends, I pray you would see the good and gracious and kind Savior in our text this morning. There may be a a temptation brought on by the the weariness and, and just difficulty of life's challenges to want to start to blame when we don't see miraculous things. One, that's not because they're not happening. But two, we're, we're tempted to blame ourselves for not having enough faith. We are tempted to blame others for their misplaced actions, words, or sentiments when we don't experience relief. We are even tempted to blame God when the mountains don't move. But friends, see in our scripture today, with a word, the boy was healed. The demon was rebuked. He has power over all creation. And he has come near to his people. Look to him. 
Jesus is a good Messiah. And the enemy, Satan, is all too eager to distract us and to take our focus off of Jesus. He is the only foundation from which we should build our lives. He is our strong tower and refuge. He is the only one who makes the impossible possible. He is the creator of the universe who spoke the entire cosmos and all things into being and is the only one who can move mountains. He alone is worthy of your faith. He is the only success in God's story. Be consumed, friends, in your heart, soul, and mind with Jesus. Pray continually. Repent often. Meditate daily on his word and testify to his work. Believe in his sufficiency when you doubt, fail, and are found hopeless. Trust he is a willing and good savior. He is. That's who he has revealed himself to be. Let's continue reading here. Verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. All right, marker number two for a correct understanding of following Jesus. Jesus is the only right answer to God's promises. This is the prophecy that Jesus is giving his disciples about the Messiah. His understanding is correct about what he came to do. And he is the only right answer to God's promise. Now, I entitled the sermon this morning, Faith, Fortune, and Freedom. I have some explaining to do. Um, I personally love Asian food or whatever it is we experience around here. I'm not sure. But I grew up on this stuff. I lived here, was born and raised. Um, and as a kid, and, and to be honest, my favorite part about the experience of enjoying Asian food is when the check comes and there's the little fortune cookie. I gotta believe when the disciples first heard Jesus saying this, they're like, man, this guy sucks at fortunes. I mean, that's a terrible fortune. I mean, that doesn't help us at all, Jesus. The fortune cookie. As offensive as it may sound, I actually enjoy the cookie. Um, I enjoy the fortune too. I like looking for my numbers. I like reading the incredible wisdom of the age and thinking about all the amazing riches and experiences that are headed my way. I love it. It doesn't cost anything. They just bring it to you. I don't know why, but as I was reading through our passage this morning, this is the thought that came to my head. Uh, and so let's look back at our text. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. I've come to believe strongly 
that a lot of us prefer a type of fortune-telling Christianity. We just want to hear the good parts. We just want the good vibes, the good tastes, the low cost, the good outcomes with virtually nothing at stake. We desire that all the answers of life's questions are answered in tiny little pieces of paper that we can fit in a delicious cookie. We want the word of God boiled down to trite sayings. We want the prophecies for our life to include shortcuts to riches. We want what we want. We want to be convinced that the only real threat to our lives as followers of Jesus is just a tiny bit of funny taste. (laughs) So we live expecting very little of God. And we live satisfied by nothing more substantial than a fortune cookie. Again, What Jesus taught the disciples in this brief parable as they gathered in Galilee should be understood by us as earth-shaking. They were greatly distressed, our text says, at the fortune that they had just received from Jesus. We've already been given a brief glimpse of their disappointment because this isn't the first time Jesus had said something like this. In fact, that is the, uh, in the previous chapter, that is the moment where Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. He rebuked him for speaking such depressing fortunes about his life and ministry as God's Messiah. And what does Jesus do? He tells Peter to get behind me, Satan. They were distressed for the same reason that their faith was small. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6, 23. He told them what he came to do. And they struggled with that because that was not what they wanted him to do. They were focused on the things of man and not the things of God. That the Son of Man was betrayed, killed, and resurrected is the culmination of all of God's promises to us, his people. This is the good news, but they couldn't see it. The gospel is how God saves people from their sin. This is how we come to experience life through a dead man who was raised victorious over sin. God did not send Jesus as a small treat for us to enjoy. He's not a good teacher, He's not just a good man. I mean, he is those things, but that's not all he is. Mountains don't need to move for people who just need a little something extra to help better their life. Jesus sharpened the focus of his mission for his disciples in this moment. He was crystal clear about the cost he was going to pay and the cost he was willing to pay for those he loved. He says, the son of man. This is one of Jesus' favorite references to himself in the book of Matthew. This comes from the vision and prophecy given in the book of Daniel chapter 7. And this, this title, the son of man, it, uh, Daniel prophesies and, it, and he sees one coming like a son of man to re- receive his eternal kingdom and everlasting dominion. Jesus was not satisfied by strike saints 
little fortunes. The kingdom of heaven is established in Jesus, God's only begotten son who offered his life as an atonement for the sin of men. When we read this kind of imagery with our focus on earthly things like the disciples did, we inevitably sell short the full vision of God's plan for his eternal kingdom. They were looking for a Messiah in the here and now who would take up power in their situation and circumstances and rule over the land. And they were expecting him to be kind of a political king. That is not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to give his life fully for God's glory and to demonstrate his great love for us, love that was born in his full submission to the will of God and love that was without limit. He suffered on the cross. He stood condemned because of our sin against a holy God. The Son of Man did not come to establish a fortune cookie kingdom. He came to rescue sinful men from God's wrath against unrighteousness. And this cost him his life. And we see in our text today, it says he would be delivered. He was betrayed by the very ones that he came to save. But the good news is, on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And this resurrection is our hope. This was God's plan from the beginning and promise to reconcile sinners to himself. Jesus knew his mission. He knew who had sent him and he demonstrated perfect obedience to God's will. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 1.20, we can say that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, in him. And that is why through him we utter our Amen. To God for his glory. Jesus began his preaching ministry uh, teaching about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 4. His life, death, and resurrection serve as the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. He does not offer us something as insignificant as just what we expect of him. He offered his life. He offered everything. Jesus is the only right answer to God's promises. Friends, our generation is no different than the disciples and the people that encountered Jesus at the foot of the mountain. We are faithless and twisted and in desperate need of a Savior. That's why Jesus came. Repent and believe this gospel message. When we talk about repentance, what we mean by repentance is kind of living in that distressed state that the disciples found themselves in. We want to believe the lie that we were told in Genesis chapter 3, that we can be like God, that we know good from evil, that we have control over our own lives, that we know what is right and wrong for us that we know how to live best according to our needs. But in repentance, Jesus is calling us to abandon our understanding of things and turn and believe him. Your hope for salvation is in one who was resurrected, not in your efforts to figure it out. 
Repent and believe the gospel message. Turn to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God sent his son because of his amazing love for us. He was betrayed. He died as a ransom and payment for our sin and he rose from the grave in victory over sin, death, and Satan. And this is why we rejoice. This is not an opportunity for us to distress or become anxious, but to trust that God is good and has given his life so that we can know him. Let's keep moving down the road here in our text this morning. Uh, Let's look at uh, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Um, That's awesome. Do we have any fishermen in here? I've tried. I've drowned a lot of worms at the lake, but I have never actually caught anything. Has anyone have a fishing story greater than this one? This is impressive. And it seems kind of, what's the point? (laughs) Um, But let's, let's look at it here. So marker three for our correct understanding of following Jesus. Jesus is the only right keeper of true freedom. Hear what Jesus taught his disciple Peter. He says, the sons are free. Does that refresh your spirit this morning? It took me a few times of reading that to really, oh, oh, yeah. The sons are free. They reach Capernaum and are asked about the temple tax. This was a carryover from the tradition and teaching of the Old Testament about the sanctuary tax. Um, As opposed to most of Jesus' encounters with the religious leaders of the day, uh, this interaction is is rather benign. It's not that exciting. Um, But it's still an opportunity for Jesus to teach his disciples. And he does it in this clever way. One that almost lightens the mood of this heavy experience that they have been through the last few chapters of Matthew. And it's interesting. Peter doesn't hesitate when he answers those who came to collect the tax. He answered emphatically, yes. There's no indication that those who were there were trying to trap or trick Jesus. Uh, The other interesting thing in this passage is when Jesus comes in, it's Jesus who speaks first. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going on in Peter's head. He knew what they asked him. He knows all things. In this brief parable, 
Jesus gives us a, a kind of a sweet picture of his interaction with the law, the law of God. There are some who would claim Jesus is at odds with the Old Testament law, but Jesus taught in Matthew 5 that he did not come to do away with the law, but rather to fulfill it. In his clever way, Jesus' questions to Peter reveals a claim to his divine sonship. He says, from whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Jesus here is saying, he is the son who is free. He has no obligation to pay this tax. He is God's son. And he is free and enjoys freedom from the law. In fact, he came to fulfill it. Ultimate freedom in life and death belongs to the Son of God, who is Jesus. And yet he demonstrates his humility. Notice he says, not to cause offense. And he makes full provision for the law and the tax in the temple. Jesus is the only right keeper of true freedom. As with the other markers, this has massive implications for us. Why? Because Jesus paid the price that God's law exposed in our hearts. Taken at face value, this is a brilliant comedy. Jesus distills complete and total freedom from the law of sin and death through a fish with two coins in its mouth. Jesus offers himself as the only solution to humanity's enslavement to our sin. Do you think Peter understood that in this moment? I mean, it's almost a playful moment. You don't believe me, Peter? Go fish. The law of God shows us our sin. It shows us that we can never meet the demands of the law and reminds us that the payment... For our sin against God's righteousness is death. This is the great fear of every person born. Romans 6 teaches us that we are enslaved to sin and death and there is no escape. But Jesus gives his disciples a marker to help understand that God's promise includes the full payment for our sin. That's why his prophecy and this, this is so important for us that he came to die and to raise to life. That's why he is the only right object of our faith. In this parable, Jesus not only identifies himself as the source of true freedom, but he teaches that he will provide for those who have faith and believe in him. Notice the fish has enough for both Jesus and Peter in its mouth. The sons are free. True freedom from sin and death only come through the full provision of Jesus Christ. He is the only right keeper of true freedom. As with faith and promise, the key to true freedom is Jesus. He is able and ready to receive you. He has paid the price that we owe And by God's grace, he welcomes all who would believe in him. John, 
or sorry, Romans 8, 14 and 15 says this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In Jesus, the sons have been set free. Live in this truth. Walk fully in its authority for your life and embrace the provision and grace that God has offered you through his son, Jesus.